It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, be sure your sin will find you out. Let's look first at the immediate context in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 32. I knew it was a palindrome. 32, 23, 23, 22, 32. Okay, y'all know what a palindrome is, right? Race car, Coco Bob, mom, dad. Uzi rat in a sanitary zoo. <laughs> look at that, look that one up. Okay, all right. Nurse, I spy gypsies, run. All right. Okay, stop that, stop that. All right, Numbers 32, 23. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So, you know, just looking at the verse that that's contained, I mean, when somebody quotes that, I mean, they're taking the small little part of a verse. And so in Numbers, this is Moses obviously writing this, but he says, but if you do not do so, then take note, you've sinned against the Lord. So immediately we should be asking, if you don't do what? You know, what is it that if you don't do, you sinned against the Lord? And what is that sin that if you do it, it's going to find you out? So let's just kind of branch out, take another lens and just take a little step back and let's look at a bigger chunk of the verse in uh, Numbers 32. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, okay? So I'm going to kind of go ahead and branch out even a little more into the whole chapter. Then Moses said to who, okay? Moses is talking to two tribes, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad. Now the tribe of Reuben and Gad on the journey to the promised land and right up to the promised land got insanely blessed. They got, in ble- they got blessed with, with sheep, with cattle. I mean, they had the animals. They had wealth. And so on the way to the promised land, they really liked this fertile area just short of the promised land. They said, Moses, look, we want to camp here. This place just is perfect to meet our needs, the needs of our needs of our animals that God has blessed us with. We want to camp out right here. And Moses, at first, he did not like that at all. He said, no, we're about to go into the promised land. He didn't say this was the promised land. He said, we're going to go all the way in and said, there's going to be some wars and there's going to be some fighting going on. And, and they come up with this thing and they say, look, we'll, we'll, you know, the armed men will go to war when it's time. When you call us, we'll be there. We'll leave other people behind. We just want to camp out here. And I couldn't help but think of the American version of Christianity. We're so much like Reuben, and we're so much like Gad. Like, look, get me close. You know, get me pretty close. But I don't quite want to go all the way in. If I go all the way in, it may cost me some of my wealth. It may cost me some of my cattle. It may cost me some of my, my sheep, my, my animals. You know, I'm not sure about going all the way in. And Moses permits them to camp out here. And in the context of that story, he says... If you do this thing, okay, 
If you, if you don't want to quite go all the way in to where the rest of us are going in, to where the Lord said, this is the land we are to occupy. If you do this thing that you've presented to me, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies before him. You are, this is going to be a warring thing that you better do. You better arm up for battle. And I mean, until the Lord drives out his enemies in the promised land, then you better be ready for this. And the land is subdued before the Lord. I mean, he's really laying this out. If you're going to hang out back here, Your men better be ready to go help us conquer in there because that's what the Lord has declared as ours. Then afterward, after the Lord has completed his mission, you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, If you refuse to keep the fighting spirit and to do the things that we need to conquer and take over the land, if you do not do so, then take note. You've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, wasn't that a cool little study even right there in that one little verse? You know, you kind of like, oh, be sure you're, where is that? Numbers? Okay, You, you look it up. You back up just a little bit, you know, but if you don't do so, then take note you've sinned. You know, what what does that mean? Well, back up a little more. Just keep expanding your lens and look at the context. I love doing the John 3, 16 one because, you know, we think that it's just a verse for everybody. But that was a verse to a specific specific person named Nicodemus. And you can read the whole conversation. And throughout the context of the Gospels, you can see what that conversation did for Nicodemus. So I loved seeing just that little bit in its broader context. So the Bible gives us a good look on how these two tribes, Reuben and Gad, got started. So we're going to kind of kind of look at these are the two tribes not quite wanting to go all the way in. And the best we can tell, they did help fight. Okay? They didn't sin against the Lord in that. But I'm thinking that the Lord allowed this, or maybe Moses kind of said that, that, that he's going to allow this, but I don't believe that they were completely giving themselves to the Lord by not going in to the promised land. And so we're going to look at some before, and we're going to look at after, see what happened to the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and specifically what happened to, to Gad. Okay, so let's back up to Genesis, the beginning. In Genesis chapter 29. Now, this is how Reuben came into existence. I mean, so when they say the tribe of Reuben, remember that before Reuben was a tribe, Reuben was a man. Okay? Now, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of the story, but you should know the story of Jacob and uh, Leah and how Jacob wanted Rachel as a wife and then Laban tricked him and gave him Leah. And he's like, no, I didn't want her. I wanted the other one. And so he married, you know, the, the Laban allowed him to work seven more years and give him Rachel as a wife. So he ended up with two wives and he did not love this one. 
But even though he was tricked, he shouldn't have married Rachel. I know that we think, oh, well, it's, in, it's the Bible days. They allowed all this multi-marriage and stuff like that. He didn't. I mean, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Not wives, plural. It was supposed to be one. I know they all did it, but they did it against the will of God. So, I mean, here Jacob is. He was given Leah, but he didn't want her. He was married. He was married to somebody, and he wants to marry somebody else. Crosby, Stills, and Nash had not written the song yet. That if you can't be with the one that you love, what do you do? Love the one you're with. It was terrible, but okay. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. I mean, here's the Lord saying, okay, slick, you know, you got, the, you got what you wanted here against my wishes. Let's see what you do with this. He opens the womb of the one he doesn't love, and he closes the womb of the one that he does love. And the Lord saw that Leah, she's unloved. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, and this is what Reuben means, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And guys, the application here, people must be born again from our church Because we love God and we are serving him. But I think we get so many egomaniac preachers that say, if we get a bunch of people in here, then God is going to be pleased. Then God will love us. The, The children are supposed to be born because we love each other and you have a child born out of love but this child is born and the mama says maybe because I have this kid my husband will now love me that relationship and he's going to grow up and eventually see his daddy and Rachel the one he loves have a child named Joseph. And Reuben is going to have to watch Joseph be coddled with the coat of many colors and be the special golden child. And it's going to create some resentment in him. And it's going to make him be glad to launch Joseph on to Egypt and be a slave and to make a little money off of it. Man, this is dangerous what's going on here. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But here this child comes in and mama says, saying, maybe because I have this child, my husband will love me now. Not a great way to come into the world and not the best situation to come into the world. Now let's look at Gad. How was he born? In Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing Okay, so Leah's like, I'm done. And she's got a great story of why she was done. She finally, she, you know, the next baby was born and she was like, oh, maybe he'll love me now. The next baby was born. Oh, maybe he'll love me now. But she finally had a kid named Judah. And she said, you know what? 
I am tired of making babies trying to get a man that does not love me to love me. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. I'm just going to make my life about him and praising him. And I don't care anymore that this man looks at my sister in the way that he's never going to look at me. I'm going to praise the Lord. And, he, and she named that child Judah, which means praise. It's beautiful. And when you read the Old Testament and like there's these wars going on. And the first time, you know, they'll say, Who, what, what do I do, Lord? They'll say, send Judah up. Send praise up. And so when it looks like you're going to be defeated, when it looks like everything's coming against you, send Judah up. Send praise up because this time it doesn't matter the circumstances. doesn't matter that my husband don't look at me like he looks at my sister. Don't, don't matter that these armies are coming after me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to praise the Lord. But what ended up happening was Rachel eventually did have Joseph. And then Rachel eventually did say, well, here's my maid, you know, go ahead and marry her too, and let's have some more babies. And so Leah, after saying, this time I'll praise the Lord, she decides to jump back in to the baby-making contest with her sister. And so it says, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, oh man, I can't give, I can't have any more kids. She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. So, I mean, just, just expanding the problem. Now he's got four wives. You know, he should only have one, but it is what it is. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, a troop comes. Like, we're just going to make an army of babies. She called his name Gad. You were only born because... Mama decides she's going to re-enter this contest to get back at her sister and to make more babies. This really rearranges the church concept for me. You know, we got to have a mega church. we got to have a really big church. Okay, I agree. I would love that. But why? And how are we going to produce it? Are we just going to go out and do some things and get them up and say, well, God, you got to love us now. Look at our numbers. Or... Or are we going to love him? We're going to fall in love with God ourselves. And as people come in here, they say, I don't know what that presence is. I don't know what that, that feeling is that I get in there. But I want more of it. How do I get it? And then we tell them that it's all about the Lord. We tell him what he's done. Tell him how he can change your life. Tell him how the Holy Spirit can come in and change everything. And they're born out of our love relationship for God. Not out of a desire to get into a contest with every other church out there and see who can have the most. That's how Gad was born. And then you see Gad in numbers that we just talked about saying, mm, I don't know if I want to go all the way into the promised land. I kind of like it here. So when you need me, I'll show up with you guys and I'll fight. But other than that, I like my wealth. I like my station right here. I don't want to go all the way in. So now from there, I hope you have your Bibles. We got a few more. 
but I want you to turn with me because I'm going to try to wean you all off the screens, okay? And uh, I want you, I, I use a new King James Version, so you can bring that one if you want to follow along word for word, but you can bring any version. But I want you guys to look up Joshua chapter 22, if you have your Bibles, okay? So I'm going to look at a couple more things. Joshua 22, and starting in verse 10, okay? Because the land did get conquered. Everything they said happened. But here's the deal. Everything they said happened. And Gad and Reuben and actually eventually the half-tribe of Manasseh, which is Joseph's two sons, you know, one of those, uh, half went and they divided up. They joined uh, Reuben and Gad on the wrong side of the river. Okay? So that's what ended up happening. And then Reuben and Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, no longer really needed. They're not calling them up to fight anymore. Everything happened. And so they get a little worried, and they do something in verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben and children of Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Whoa! Like, they build this altar, Right? And the people on the right side of the river say, what are they doing? I mean, do they not know God's law that you cannot build an, an altar, but in a specific place? That, and by his rules and by his ways, what are they doing? They're ready to go to war against these guys for building this altar. Now skip over to verse 21. In verse 21, it says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the division of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord of God, know, the Lord God, he knows. He knows. And let Israel itself know if it's a rebellion or if in tre- treachery against the Lord, don't save us today. If we've built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we've done it for fear, for a reason, saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what do you, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. Now, right off the bat, the Lord didn't make the Jordan a border between you and us. This was your choice. You didn't want to go all the way in. And now you're all of a sudden, you didn't think about this before. All you thought about was your immediate needs and my wealth will survive best here. But now everything's open and over, over and they're saying, well, wait a minute. If we're not on the right side, they may forget about us. 
And, they, and we may not get in on the blessings. You need to think about that on this side of the Jordan. Before we cross over to be with the Lord, think about it. I know the Lord asks us to do some hard things. But when we stand before him on that side, what do we want to be able to say? We want to be able to say, Lord, I risked it all for you and you were more than worth it. You don't want to be able to say, well, God, you know why I stayed on the other side. You gave me all that cool stuff. So I thought that was just the best place to take care of it. It's like, no, you know, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and wealth. And so that's the situation, you know, going on here. Let me try to finish that with uh, in verse 29. Or starting in verse 27. May it be a witness between, between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the servants of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part with the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they said this to us or our generations in time to come that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it's a witness between you and us. So they even say, they admit, we built this altar so that when you look at it, When you see it, you say, oh, they do have part with us. But guys, what's an altar for? An altar is for something to be, to, to lay down something valuable to you. Which is why Jesus was so mad in the temple when they were, you know, these people were bringing their best goats and their best lambs and their best animals. And they were in the temple saying, nah. Can't use that one. You got to be use one of ours. So you got to pay. We trade it and then pay us a little more. It was ridiculous. So Jesus got so furious with what they were doing. But the point of an altar was to lay down something on it valuable to you. I mean, imagine raising that lamb, that perfect spotless lamb, and your kids petting it and your kids hugging it and it eating you know from you and you going out and talking to it and you know it's going to be the sacrificial lamb and you go up to that altar and you weep and you cry and you're like oh my goodness lord this is what it costs my sin this lamb and how much more valuable is jesus the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world the reason the cross should be painful for us because somebody so great went and stood in our place so that we could be forgiven and made clean when you think of him on the cross he should be valuable to you but here they are saying here's an altar we don't really want to sacrifice anything on it yeah just like you didn't want to sacrifice any of your stuff to cross The Jordan, now you want blessings and you want to have an altar and you don't want to put anything on it? What is the consequence of living like this? And you won't know until Mark chapter 5. Let's flip over to the New Testament. Mark 
chapter 5. Man, when I stop, it's hard to not go. <laughs> so I'm there, I'll just suck it in and try to look cool. All right. Check this out, man. Mark chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Wow. These guys stayed together, whole tribe. Now it's the region of the Gadarenes. When he come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. And so apparently the Gadarenes knew about this guy and it wasn't a big deal to him. When he saw Jesus from far, he ran and worshiped. He cried out, cried out with a loud voice, said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of this man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What's your name? And he answered, said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out send them out of the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. Think about it. As time went by, they traded hundreds of thousands of sheep and cattle for pigs, an unclean animal that they're not even supposed to associate with. But now, that's their moneymaker. That's their God. That's the, this is our source of wealth. And so, it says, Now a huge herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine, the Gadarenes, right, fled. And they told it in the city, in the country, and went, went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw one who had been de de uh, demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. They had no problem with him while he's freaking out and cutting himself and yelling and rattling chains and breaking chains and all that. And those who saw it, uh, it says they were sitting in his right mind and they were afraid. Are you kidding me? Oh, can you tell? All right. All right. It says when they saw him in the right mind, it's when they were afraid, not the other way around. I mean, they're so got this backwards. And those who saw it, told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. They didn't want to go in all those centuries ago, right, to the presence of the Lord. Now the presence of the Lord comes to them, and they tell him to get out of here. Unbelievable, guys. And I, I'm telling you, I just, I just do not want that to happen to us, to happen to Lifeline Community Church. 
If you're going to serve God, let's do it wholeheartedly with everything that we, that we are and that we have. And let's never put us, our children, our generations on down in this situation. So, after all that, okay, that's the adult version of be sure your sin will find you out. Now, let's look at the children's version. So if I've bored you kids halfway to half to death, this is the part that's for you, okay? So we're going to read The Great Ice Cream Heist. All right. And a heist is like a burglary, you know? I'm going to go steal something. Hardcore. Don't do it, okay? All right. The Great Ice Cream Heist, a true story by Aunt Carolyn. Okay, here we go. Johnny was a city kid. To him, the best part of the year was summertime because when school was out, he could spend the whole summer on Grandpa's farm. It was great. His best friends beside Grandpa and Grandma were the horses, cows, and goats. There was room to roam, plenty of work, plenty of grandma's cooking, and time to hear grandpa spin some fine yarns in the grandma grandpa spin some fine yards in the e- yarns in the evening. Johnny stuck close to grandpa, learned how to do the farm work, and now he was old enough to run some of the machinery. He loved driving the tractor, mowing hay, and helping, and every day grandpa gave him the same warning. Be careful, Johnny. Keep your mind on your work. This isn't kids' play. Every day he tried to do his best. Every night he was tired and ready to fall into bed. The work was hot and steady. And sad to say, Johnny was rather glad when the tractor coughed, sputtered, and jerked in the field instead of rolling smoothly. It was a bad time for a breakdown, and Grandpa hurried to get it fixed at the machine shop near town. During the long wait for repairs, Johnny wandered around the shop. Then he and Grandpa went next door to the general store to pass the time. The store stuff was enticing. Groceries, small tools, farm feed and seed, snacks, and best of all, an ice cream box. Johnny walked the aisles of the store looking at tools and hardware Then went back to Grandpa's, he talked with Mr. Green, the store owner. He listened a while, then sauntered back near the ice cream box. Those ice cream bars surely were tempting. Ice cream was good any time, but during hot summertime, who could resist? Johnny turned from the box and again walked the aisles. Grandpa and Mr. Green were still talking, not noticing Johnny. Slowly, he sidled back to the ice cream box. It looked so good, and no one would ever know. Quietly, he eased the sliding door open, pulled out a yummy ice cream bar, and stuffed it into the front pocket of his jeans. It didn't even show. He would slip outside and ate it. No one would see. Slowly, so as not to attract attention, Johnny meandered toward the door. Mr. Green moved from behind the counter toward the door, continuing to chat with Grandpa. Johnny watched and waited. He was so anxious to get outside. 
As he moved to go out, Mr. Green moved again and stood right in front of the door, straightening his shelf and still visiting. Oh, why couldn't they talk somewhere else? Johnny was getting more nervous now. Why did grown-ups have to talk so long? Maybe he could excuse himself and slip past them. But no, Mr. Green stood in the middle of the doorway, straightening the open, closed sign, still talking to Grandpa. Johnny wanted to push past him and get outside. The longer they talked, the more anxious he became. At last, Mr. Green solemnly looked down at the boy. Do you have a problem, son? Can I help you? No, sir, I don't reckon so. No questions were needed. Mr. Green had talked to Grandpa a long time on purpose. He had allowed time for the deed to reveal itself. For the ice cream had melted, soaked through Johnny's jeans, run down his leg, and even dripped into his shoe. Johnny was caught. Clearly, he had stolen the ice cream, and his secret was out. There was no way to hide it. The very thing he had stolen had betrayed him. Mr. Green spoke. You see, Johnny, I saw you when you were lingering back by the ice cream box. These big mirrors overhead helped me to keep an eye on every part of the store. I was watching you all the time and blocked your way to the door. Now you are wearing the evidence of your deed. You're guilty. You will have to pay for the ice cream, and I'm sure your grandpa will tend to the rest of the matter at home. Johnny was ashamed and miserable. As he climbed up on the tractor to go home, grandpa spoke quietly. Remember your verse from Sunday school last week, Johnny? Be sure your sins will find you out. Remember? It was a long, hot ride back home that afternoon. Johnny's clothes were a mess. They stuck to him and even drew flies. For once in his life, Johnny was anxious to get a bath. But first, he had to face his wrongdoing with Grandpa. Grandpa tended to him. All right, and Johnny never forgot that verse be sure your sins will find you out. It's true. You can't do wrong and get away with it. You may think no one sees you. Your teachers, parents, or preacher may never know. But God knows. He sees you. His eyes are on you all the time. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs fifteen three. Thou God seest me. Genesis 16, 13. If stores have surveillance mirrors, if buses have cameras to photograph actions, if intersections have cameras to catch drivers who run red lights, if satellites can show events across the ocean and even in space, it is no problem for God Almighty in heaven to see, know, and record your every movement. You cannot sin and get away with it. Be sure your sin will find you out. Johnny knew he had sinned and deserved punishment, and so do you. You remember times when you have done wrong. Maybe you have lied or stolen, cheated or cursed or used God's name in vain. Sin has to be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell away from God and his mercy. The good news is that Jesus Christ, God's son, died on Calvary to pay for your sin. If you will repent of your sin, turn from it, and receive him as your Savior, he will forgive and cleanse your sin and take away the guilt. And someday, he will take you to heaven to be with him. 
Now that's good news. Receive Christ today. Obey him and have peace in your heart. Jesus promised, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty seven.